0: And the word of the Lord came to me Take from the exiles Heldi, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehosedak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam. Abijah, Jediah, and Hain, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Our Father, we do praise you that today our Savior, the Lord Jesus rose from the grave, and that now as we bow before you, he sits on the throne, the throne of glory and grace, our great priest king, a full and sufficient redeemer, building the temple of the Lord, the church of the living God, where he will make his spirit dwell from people from all over the world. We thank you that he does that as the gospel is preached. And so we pray that as your word is opened and proclaimed, that our king and God and redeemer... And Lord and friend and Savior, the Lord Jesus, would build his temple and his kingdom even here among us. For the glory of his name we pray. Amen. It is the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ, wrote the Puritan John Owen, that is one of the greatest privileges and advantages of believers both in this world and unto eternity. Another has said that the personal glory of the Lord Jesus is to the Bible what the Son is to our planet. That what the church of God requires collectively and needs individually is a frequent repose and devout meditation within the hollow temple of the Redeemer's glory. The more closely we contemplate it and the more transforming and assimilating its influence upon our minds, the better we shall be fitted and the more successful will be our labors. To go forth and invite others into it, its study and win them to its love. For much of the first six chapters of this amazing book of prophecy, we've seen a series of eight night visions given to the prophet Zechariah. And now, at the end of chapter six, we come not to yet another vision given to Zechariah, but to an action that he was commanded to take in light of those visions. It was an action that was not only made meaningful by the eight visions that preceded it, but that also signified the great event to which all of those visions were pointing. All those preceding visions spoke in various ways of God's devoted love for his people, to his commitment to keep all of the promises that he made to them. In the most immediate and the final vision that we saw in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we're told symbolically of the judgment that God will bring upon all the ungodly nations of the world that set themselves against his kingdom. And now, after all the visions have been given, Zechariah is commanded to symbolize the coronation of that king who will rule that kingdom. Concerning this great passage, Charles Feinberg wrote, Here we have the end and consummation of all prophetic scriptures, the crowning of the Lord Jesus Christ, It is only after the dark night of world judgment and punishment is passed that the glorious light of Christ's coronation day will follow. This is one of the sublimest passages in the scriptures on the person and work of the Messiah. In other words, Zechariah's visions, they encouraged God's people that the temple would be rebuilt in Jerusalem. But as important as that temple was, it was not the source of Israel's hope. Far more important is the man who comes to build the true temple. God lifts Israel's eyes from the temple building to the temple builder, to there to rest their hope. So acting on God's behalf, Zechariah placed a crown on the head of the high priest and then with a finger pointed at the one he symbolically represented. The prophet cried, Behold the man. It's my prayer this morning that we will behold that man and be changed into his likeness. So as we look at this passage, here's the key truth that I want us to believe. The crowned priest will build the Lord's temple, so come and help build it. The crowned priest will build the Lord's temple, so come and help build it. But how would the prophet teach us about this crowned priest? What does it mean that he's going to build the temple of the Lord? Well, that's what I want us to see this morning. So if you're not there already... Turn to Zechariah 6. The passage begins with a sign act in the crowning of Joshua the high priest. And then Zechariah speaks an oracle about the branch whom Joshua symbolizes. And then he makes application to the people in Joshua's day and to the people yet to come. So I want us to observe three scenes in our passage today. The priest's coronation in verses 9 through 11. The prophet's declaration in verses twelve to thirteen, and the people's participation in verses fourteen and fifteen. So first, the priest's coronation. Look at verse nine. And Jediah, who have arrived, take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehosadak, the high priest. Well, that this is not another one of those night visions is shown by the phrase, and the word of the Lord came to me. Uh, This distinguishes what follows from those other introductory statements that pointed to another sequence in the visions, right? I saw by night. I I lifted my eyes and saw. Then he showed me, and and so on. This is not presented as a vision, but rather as a distinct command. But it has a close relationship to those eight night visions, because we see the reappearance of Joshua the high priest, who we saw in chapter 3, and the same focus is on the temple, now, the action that was commanded had to do with the reception of a gift of gold and silver that was brought by exiles who had arrived from Babylon. Merrill Unger notes that the God-honoring names of this 3 men crew uh, are meant to be seen as symbolically significant. You have Heldai, whose name means the Lord's world. Uh, his alternate name in verse 14 is Helam. You have Tobijah, whose name means Yahweh is good. And you have Jediah, whose name Means Yahweh knows. Uh, they come to Jerusalem as exiles, right? That is, that they were captives, Jews, uh, for the work in Babylon. And they come with a donation from their fellow exiles for the work in the building of the temple. And their names may suggest their personal piety, their trustworthiness to be given this responsibility. It's interesting to note that this gift was brought to Zechariah, particularly since it was him. To whom the eight night visions had been given. Now we're not told of the motivation for why they come. Uh, It's not important in the in the in the chapter uh, because the Lord is going to use their gift to make something that symbolizes uh, something of great significance through the prophet. Now the same day that he receives it, it Zechariah, he said, is to go and take the gift and enter the house of Josiah the son of Zephaniah. The name Josiah means the Lord supports. And his other name, Hain, which you see there again in verse 14, uh, means gracious. Now these names may suggest that this man Josiah was a host to the three men who had come from Babylon. But by verse 14, he's considered one of the others who would now bear witness to this significant thing that is going to occur through, uh, through this coronation. So Zechariah is told... To make a crown from the gift of the silver and gold. Now, in Hebrew, the word for the crown is in the plural, crowns. Uh, Is this multiple crowns being made? Well, I think it's best to see it as describing a a composite crown made from several parts, perhaps part of silver and part of gold, woven together into one elaborate elaborate crown. Maybe it's what some scholars call a plural of majesty. Other translations might call it an ornate or an elaborate crown. This reminds us of the kind of crown that the Lord Jesus will wear at the time of his return, where on his head were many crowns. And Zechariah is told to then take this elaborate crown and set it not on the head of the governor, Zerubbabel, which would have communicated the restoration then and there of uh, the kingship from David's line and would not have done justice to the great thing that was about to be communicated, but rather to set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Now, you recall that it was the high priest Joshua and not the governor Zerubbabel who was identified symbolically as my servant, the Branch in chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, This coronation, under one person, as was the promised union of the offices of priest and king under one person, as we'll see in verses 12 to 13. Uh, it's It's a remarkable picture, clear, of the promised ministry of our Savior. So so that's the sign act, the priest's coronation. Now let's consider Zechariah's words to Joshua, the prophet's declaration. And we'll spend most of our time here. Look at verse 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor." And shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Zechariah has provided the picture in the crowning of Joshua, and now he speaks to its significance. And in these densely packed statements, we have arguably the most complete depiction of Christ in the Old Testament. And Zechariah gives eight descriptions. Of the one whom Joshua represents. First, consider his design. Behold the man. These are words that echo throughout the Bible as the core of God's message for the salvation of sinners. Behold the man. First, he was known simply as the offspring of the first woman, Eve. To Satan in the garden, God had spoken of him I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel behold the man we hear and the first thing you know about him is that he will be a man truly man the son of a human mother later god identifies him as the seed of abraham a descendant of the man of faith the generations passed and in a day of moses god said once more behold the man this time he is a prophet one like moses who would speak from god to the people God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Later still, David is shown a king to sit on his throne forever, one of his own descendants. Behold the man, God says to our faith. In Isaiah 53, he is the suffering servant, the man of sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. And here in Zechariah, we have reached the Old Testament's most complete portrait of this long-awaited man. A crown is placed on the high priest's head to go with the garments of righteousness he received in chapter 3. Behold the man, the Lord says. This is the man who will sit enthroned, robed in majesty, to build the spiritual house that will be God's true temple. How many Jews in Zechariah's day... Looked ahead to this man in faith. They wondered when he would appear, what he would look like. Their hearts burned to see the day when this man would be unveiled. That day did come at last when the man was presented before the crowds of Jerusalem. And just as Zechariah had placed a crown of woven strands upon the head of Joshua, so a crown was placed on the brow of God's true man. A purple robe was draped around his shoulders, and with words echoing, God's earlier revelation, the cry was lifted to the assembled crowd, Behold, the man. It was just as Zechariah had prefigured, and yet it was so different. Jesus Christ was crowned, not with woven silver and gold, but with a crown of woven thorns. The purple robe was given not to honor him, but to mock him. John tells us, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Was this the plan for the man all along? Scripture says there is one mediator between God and man. A mediator was needed. It was God who was offended and it was God who satisfied, said the Puritan Watson. To which we would add, it was man who offended and it was man who must answer for the offense. Both are necessary. For our redemption, there was required a perfect obedience and a perfect payment or satisfaction, each having infinite value to answer for a world of sinners. Christ's deity answers the demand of an infinite obedience and an infinite payment, and his humanity answers the demands of a human substitution, our flesh satisfaction. Consider this. Christ took up our flesh that he might render for us what we owe to God in terms of obedience. Consider this also. He took up our flesh that he might die in it for us, what we owe to God in terms of disobedience. The goal of Bethlehem was always Golgotha. The whole point of the birth of this blessed man was not sentimental, but sacrificial, The body prepared for him was prepared to be one sacrifice for sins for all time. The humanity he willingly and lovingly assumed was assumed that he might assume our sin, be made sin for us, absorb our guilt, and in our place assuage the holy and righteous wrath of Almighty God against sin. He took a body that he might take the blows due to sinners. Here is why the fruit of Mary's womb is so blessed. Had Christ not been made flesh, then we would forever have been made cursed. Had he not been made incarnated, then we would have been incarcerated and incinerated forever. So when we see the fulfillment of what the prophet prefigured, crown of silver and gold, but how much more precious is the crown of thorns? Oh, that we would see more beauty there than in all the silver and gold this world can offer. Here is the man, here is the answer long awaited. And God raised him up that all might look on him, believe, and be saved. Thirty years after his resurrection and ascension into heaven, Paul still calls him in 1 Timothy 2.5, the man, Christ Jesus. In Acts 17, as Paul exhorts the men in Athens to repent, he tells them of God's appointed day of judgment through a man whom he has appointed. And it is to Christ as God, yet holding on to a glorified humanity that we look. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into his glorious body. You mean like him as gods, as Mormonism teaches? No, like him as he is man, whose humanity has been glorified. He remains our pattern in heaven and for eternity. Brothers and sisters, are you beholding Christ? It's by beholding this man that we are made like him. And we all, with one degree of glory, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Look to Christ. Consider his designation, whose name is the branch. The branch is a title for a descendant of king david who would be the coming messiah the prophet isaiah spoke of the days when there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of jesse that's david's family and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit so you got a remnant from the family of king david a branch who's going to come and restore the royal line or or listen to the prophet jeremiah in words spoken just before the exile behold the days are coming declares the lord When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. You can almost hear a collective sigh of relief from the men in Josiah's living room. Because when they hear that the branch is the one for whom the crown is intended, they understand that this isn't really about Joshua, the high priest. After all, Joshua is not of the tribe of Judah. He's not a son of David. Joshua's name prefigures is in view. And yet in the fullness of time, even Joshua's name prefigures the branch. In Hebrew, it is Yehoshua. In Greek, it is Yesu. It means Yahweh is salvation. And when the angel appeared to Joseph announcing the birth of Christ, he told him, you shall call his name Yesu, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The writer of Hebrews tells us that after making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And because Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Third, consider His development. He shall branch out from his place. Zechariah tells us why his name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place. Isaiah 53 2 says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The prophets emphasize the fact that Jesus began in lowly, insignificant circumstances. The line of David had seemingly been toppled. No king from David's line had sat on the throne of Israel for over 600 years. The tree stump looked lifeless and dead. But then an insignificant young woman gave birth in the stable in the city of David to the branch of David. And he sprouted into a mighty tree whose branches reach the ends of the earth. And he is coming as the king to consummate his kingdom, and his glory will cover the whole earth. Fourth, consider his duty. He shall build the temple of the Lord. In the ancient world, temple building was the work of the kings. King Solomon built the first temple, and it was God's dwelling place among his people. His glory was revealed in the temple. The objects in the temple and its design reflected God's character and the way in which his people must approach him. It was the closest thing on earth where people could see God, meet with God, be with God. And now you may recall that in chapter 4, verse 9, the Lord promised that Zerubbabel, whose hands laid the foundation of the rebuilt temple, would also complete it. And yet, two times here in our text... The Lord says through Zechariah that it is he, the branch, who shall build the temple of the Lord. Friends, this points us to the future, which in the immediate context means that the temple in question could not be that second temple built by the returned exiles. That temple they built was temporary, a symbol of a greater temple built by a greater temple builder. Whoever the branch was, he would have to build a temple not yet standing in Zechariah's day. And brothers and sisters, we have the full story. This is a promise that Jesus will come and build a temple made from the lives of sinners from whom he sheds his blood. Jesus is building a temple for God in which he dwells by his spirit, a place where he is worshipped. And he is building it, constructing it from the lives of men and women, boys and girls, who are brought into his church through faith. In his gospel, And all of this he accomplishes by means of his cross. Jesus would say to his opponents in John 2 verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And the Jews who were listening said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you, will you raise it up in three days? But this is John's comment now. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Like the temple of, of Solomon, Destroyed by the Babylonians before the exile, the temple of Jesus' body was destroyed at the cross. And the ruined temple of Zechariah's day, likewise, had to be rebuilt. But it was only a shadow of the true temple that Jesus' resurrection would provide. In three days, the true temple, where God and sinners might meet in fellowship forever, was rebuilt when Jesus rose in victory to triumph over the grave. The temple Jesus builds, the center in which God may now be known among his people, is constructed by means of the work of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. And so the Lord Jesus is the greater temple builder. And the amazing thing is that we are now the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6.16, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As we come to Jesus, Peter says, 1 Peter 2, verse 5, we are living stones built up as a spiritual house. Or as Paul puts it, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If we see the incredible importance of the church in God's plan, we will commit ourselves to seeing it built for his glory. Jesus promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Like it says in the hymn, the church is one foundation. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against both foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. As the God-man, Jesus is the divine temple builder who is building his church into a holy temple, a clean sanctuary that will endure forever. Are you a part of that temple by faith in him? Fifth, consider his dignity, and he shall bear royal honor. He will not only accomplish the temple-building task, but will be marked by regal majesty and splendor. Solomon's glory took the queen of Sheba's breath away. His wisdom and prosperity far surpassed all the reports she had received. And yet Solomon in all his glory was never arrayed like the Lord Jesus. He is, as the hymn says, fairest, Lord Jesus. Paul says in 1 Timothy three sixteen. great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, taken up in glory. Robert Raymond wonderfully summarizes this present glory of Christ. As his resurrection was the means to his ascension, so his ascension in turn was a means to his climactic exaltation and enthronement at the Father's right hand as Holy One, Lord, Christ, Prince, and Savior of the world. If his ascension was in glory, exalting him thereby higher than all the heavens, he is also now crowned with glory and honor, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him, with everything under his feet, the Father alone accepted, sitting far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God has also given him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Indeed, who fills the whole universe with his power and lordship. In sum, he now occupies the highest place of glory and honor, which heaven can afford. And to him belongs the titles Lord of all and Lord above all other lords. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will be bare royal Sixth, consider his dominion, and he shall sit and rule on his throne. This is what the branch will do. He will preside over his kingdom. He will govern. He will defend his people. He will fulfill Isaiah 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Friends, tens of thousands died for Napoleon. Napoleon died for no one. Millions died for Hitler and Stalin and Chairman Mao and Saddam Hussein. They died for nobody. Even leaders in relatively free nations require people to die under their rule. Hundreds of thousands died under President Roosevelt. Some are still dying in this troubled world under human rulership. But Jesus is the one ruler who dies for those he rules. And he frees his subjects from a tyranny that is worse than any political tyranny. And that's why we willingly obey him. Why we want to do nothing that displeases him. By saying nothing that dishonors. what is his labor in glory to his glory and praise? Beloved, what is his labor in glory? Here again, we bow in humble awe and adoration. Having left us, and been raised to the highest place, he does not forget us. Though he announced with respect to his atoning work, it is finished. He is not finished for us. Having sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he is not idle. John Owen wrote, he leads not in heaven a life of mere glory, majesty, and blessedness, but a life of office, love, and care also. He is a king in glory. He is exalted to reign and rule, a king now coronated and throned above. Ephesians 1 says that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. He is exalted to subdue his enemies. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And he is exalted as king to rule over and preserve his church. Here is the exalted glory of his privilege and power unleashed. Directing, judging, pardoning, rewarding, protecting, and building. Seventh, consider his dual office. And there shall be a priest on his throne. This is a stunning statement. Why is that? Because in God's economy, the offices of king and priest were kept separate. They were distinct. There was a separation of powers, if you will. A priest served as the mediator between a holy God and sinful men. He had to be one with the people so as to identify with them. But he also had to be separate from the people in holiness so that he could approach God on their behalf. On the other hand, the king represented God to the people. He mediated God's rule over the people, And furthermore, the priest came from the tribe of Levi, whereas the king came from the tribe of Judah. And so this was an unthinkable concept previously in Israel. Priests did not sit on thrones, and kings did not serve as priests. And to try to combine those offices spelled trouble. Two times in Israel's history, a king tried to take the prerogatives of a priest and was punished. 1 Samuel 13. King Saul took it upon himself to offer the burnt offerings in Samuel's absence, and God vowed to remove him from office. 2 Chronicles 26, proud King Uzziah took up a censer to offer incense as a priest, and leprosy broke out on his forehead, and he was a leper the rest of his life. And yet, there were hints that one day, these two offices would be joined together. Psalm 110 speaks of... A king from the David's line who would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And here Zechariah says, there shall be a priest on his throne. That seems to speak of two persons, doesn't it? But it's also grammatically possible to translate it. He shall be a priest on his throne. So that the two offices would be united in one person. So the branch is different from those before him. He rules as both king and priest. The book of Hebrews speaks of how the Lord Jesus fulfills this prophecy. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The priests of Aaron's order never sat down. There were no chairs in the tabernacle or the temple because their work was never done. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for the sins of the people. But Christ, our priest, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. We need a priest to clean us up, to justify us, to save us. We need a king to subdue us because we are rebels. And we need him to defeat our enemies And only in the Lord Jesus Christ do we get both. Brothers and sisters, there is a glorious God on the throne. Therefore, we have a certain confidence. There is a glorious king on the throne. Therefore, we have a certain security and stability. There is a glorious priest on the throne. Therefore, we have a certain sympathy and representation. There is a glorious man on the throne. Therefore, we have a certain salvation and hope. Eighth, consider his diplomacy. The council of peace shall be between them both. The branch will sit on his throne and rule, and yet on that throne will sit a priest. And between these two ministries, the priestly and the keenly, there will be perfect harmony and agreement. That's why there was, I think, a double crown, a ring of gold and a ring of silver resting on Joshua's brow. In this one crown, just as there would be in this one man who was to come. The office of priest and the office of king will combine. It's a a dramatic picture, isn't it? One who would come in one person as both a priest and a king. Who would rule on the throne and have royal dignity. Build the temple. And he would do it all not by means of force of arms or political machinations. He would do it in the office of a priest. Holy to the Lord. And through this king priest will be the council of peace between them. There is debate about what the them refers to. Again, is it two persons? But I think likely refers to the reconciling of the two offices in the Lord Jesus Christ. There would be no tug of war between the political and the religious sphere. Because in Jesus, both offices reside in one person, the prince of peace. Friends, you will not know true peace with God Unless Jesus is both your high priest and your king. You need a priest to deal with your guilt before God. Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. And if you have put your trust in him, that sacrifice applies to all of your sins. But Jesus also must be your king. To accept him as your high priest, who opened the way into God's presence, and to reject him as your king, that's unthinkable. You cannot eliminate either office of Christ. He is both priest and king, and therefore he deserves all of our honor and obedience. So we've seen the priest's coronation and the prophet's declaration. Now we see the people's participation. Look at verse 14. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Halam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hain, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So the picture and the prophecy have been given and now Zechariah gives four ways for God's people to participate in the work of the crowned priest. First he tells them to remember God's promise. Remember God's promise. The crown, the symbol of the union of the two offices in this one man, <clears throat> it didn't remain on the head of Joshua, nor did it become his possession, because after all, he was not the branch. No, the crown is to be lodged, Zechariah says, in the second temple. There it would serve as a reminder to these four men, the same men mentioned in verse 10, that their savior, the priest king, was coming. It would remind him that The one this crown belongs to is coming soon. And brothers and sisters, we ought to remember God's promise as well. We now live on the other side of this prophecy, don't we? The crown priest has arrived in Jesus of Nazareth. He's inaugurated his reign as king. He represents us even today as priest. And yet his work is still ongoing. Christ is still building his church. And we still labor in the Lord for his glory. Remember God's determination to act in the days still to come. God has also given us signs to remember. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time, as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Even as we remember what God has done in the past, we remember his promises for the future. Let's be forward-looking people. One day Christ will come and his temple will be complete. And we'll hear a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Church, remember God's promise. Second, build God's people. Build God's people. Look at verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord that language those who are far off becomes a kind of code for gentiles non-jews peter uses it in his great pentecost sermon in acts 2:39 repent he says as he proclaims the cross and the resurrection of christ repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit for the promise is for you and for your children And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Jews and Gentiles alike, gathered together into the kingdom of Christ. And the really stunning thing is that those who are far off, who have been gathered into the kingdom, they now get to participate in the work of temple building. Those whom Jesus saves and makes his own, they don't just become passengers along for the ride, passively watching as Jesus builds his church. No, we get to share in the work of Christ's temple building. We're to become his agents in bringing the good news to the world that there is a king in heaven, a priest who can deal with your sin and reconcile you to God, Jesus Christ, the righteous branch. We get to share in the gathering of living stones that they might be built upon the chief cornerstone That is Jesus Christ. Faith in him. As it were, a brick in the temple that Jesus is building through faith in him. You've got work to do. Those who are far off shall come and build the temple of the Lord. There are are men and women, boys and girls in this county, in this neighborhood, who don't know the Lord. They don't know Jesus. And they're heading for a lost eternity. And the call of this passage is to go and tell them of Christ. To bring them like stones from the quarry to the master builder. Who will shape and form them and build them into the temple that is his church. We get to participate with the branch, with Jesus in the temple building project. What we so often shrink from as an intimidating thing. Zachariah sees it as an immense privilege. The branch himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, is building his church. And he turns to you today if you're a Christian. And he holds out his hand, as it were, and invites you to join him in the work. What a privilege. Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you're near to God's word, but you're far away from God. The fulfillment of prophecy. You who are far off can be brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't leave this place today without drawing near in faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. Today can be the day of your salvation. So this verse points us to the great missionary task of the church. God's plan is for all the peoples of the earth to worship him. We're to be a light unto all the nations. So someday there will be a great multitude from every nation, and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a day that will be. Third, believe God's prophet. Look at the second half of verse 15. And you shall know, Zechariah says, that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. When the branch comes and the people of God join him in the temple building work, taking the gospel to the nations, it will be the great confirmation that Zechariah has in fact been the spokesman, the very mouthpiece Of the Lord Himself. The authentication of the prophet, and by extension, the authentication of all Scripture, lies in the coming of the person and in the work of the branch, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you will know, He says, when the branch comes and the temple arises and He builds His church and the gospel begins to span the globe, then you'll know that He sent me to you and that His word, my word, is true. It all points to Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus said to the scribes, remember, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. The scriptures find their authentication, confirmation, validation in Jesus. The one of whom they, where they speak with a uniform voice on every page has come and done exactly as the Lord promised through his prophet. So believe God's prophet that Jesus Christ is the great demonstration of the unshakable reliability of the word of God. And finally, notice in verse 15, a call to obey God's precepts. And this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This doesn't mean that Christ's coming and the Gentiles' participation in the kingdom were contingent on Israel's obedience. God's sovereign purpose does not depend on the, sickle, the sinful fickleness of man. What he means is that Israel would not come to the knowledge of the Messiah or his kingdom blessings unless they obeyed him fully. And still today, God's prophetic plan for the ages will come according to his sovereign timetable. It will happen. But we will not be blessed as a part of that plan unless we give ourselves fully to obey the Lord. God accomplishes his plan as his people take up his call to faithful service. The temple, the branches, building is built as those who are far off come and help to build it. They participate in the work. The kingdom of God grows and the reign of Jesus Christ is extended as his servants do what they're asked and they live as they're commanded. Gospel progress in the world and gospel purity in the church are joined together. Brothers and sisters, it matters that you obey the Lord. That's a sobering truth, isn't it? Some well-meaning folks say it's all about the mission. It's also about our maturity. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations and to teach them to obey everything Christ commanded. The faithfulness of our witness and the holiness of our lives, they're bound together. God doesn't commonly work with filthy instruments when he's performing saving surgery in a sinner's heart. He likes to make use of clean instruments when he saves. So are you a clean instrument, ready for the master's use? All of this will come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Do you work diligently to obey? Or are you casual about Christ's commands? The priest keen has come, so I can sin. I'm covered by the blood. Really. Diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, because the priest keen has come. And he summons you to the high privilege of his service. Jesus, the crowned priest, will build the Lord's temple. So come and help build it. That's what the Lord wants for you today. He gave his life to include you in his temple. He died to that you will not obey in light of all that he has done for you. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, all my life, all of it, given in glad and joyful surrender for the use of King Jesus. Oh, that that might be our prayer and our song and the true commitment of our hearts, as we see again our Savior, the priest King, who has given himself to make us his, and build his temple, and call us into his service service for our joy and for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have counted us worthy to be building blocks in the hands of the great temple builder, your son, our Lord Jesus. Help us, Father, to live in the realization that we are part of the work that Jesus is fashioning. And we thank you that as priests and as sacrifice he has redeemed us and as keen he is our lord and our master may we be willing subjects to his gracious mastery to the glory of your name father if there are any here who remain far off from you may this moment right now be the time when you draw them to yourself in mercy may they leave everything behind and come to christ we ask this in his name Amen.